So uh, to our final guest of the evening, two summers ago, um, Polly Sampson gave me her untitled, unfinished manuscript to have a look at. Um, and once I started looking, um, I could not stop. Um, I was on a book tour at the time. It was quite a big manuscript. I was really a bit irritated by it at times. <laughs> um, I did lug it around with me around the UK and around the US. I will admit now, never having admitted this to losing it once, um, but it did turn up again. Anyway, so um, a long time after I finished it, I couldn't stop thinking about these two central characters, Julian and Julia, um, and their relationship um, and their daughter, Mira. The book is lyrical and it is haunting and it is often very painful and it proves um, that sometimes in order to be kind you have to be cruel. Please welcome for the world premiere of our second novel, Polly Sampson. panel all have kicked in. <laughs> we should explain <laughs> what that is. Well, it's, it's, it's actually a, 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 a medication for stage fright. So however confident I feel in my head, which is all the time very confident, <laughs> I get a terrible flight reaction, which produces too much adrenaline. And so I developed, I knew I had this when I started as an adult to learn the piano and take piano exams. And being a SWAT, I'd practice and practice and practice. I would be definitely distinction level, go in for the exam, very confident, and my hands would just do that. And after Valium, Brandy, hypnosis with Paul McKenna, <laughs> um, <laughs> my brilliant husband remembered about the snooker players and how propanolol was a beta blocker that had been banned. Um, <laughs> for them, Bad. not for the world, not for the world, 90% of classical musicians take it, much to the irritation of the 10% of classical musicians who don't get stage fright. <laughs> And it, it gave the snooker players a huge advantage because their hands didn't shake. And so because my symptoms were primarily shaking hands, he said, give that a go. And by that stage, I passed with flying colours. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see the hands. Let's see the, yeah. Oh, they are steady. They are steady. She had, a, she had rock steady. She, we were talking to Neil Mukherjee earlier who said, oh, are you taking propanolol? Oh, you should take four. She <laughs> went, really? And then a few minutes later said, well, what, how many milligrams is that? And he said, well, five. And hers are 40. <laughs> so I'm um, really glad that you stayed awake to be with us. Yes, anyway, it so doesn't <laughs> make you sleepy. <laughs> I'm teasing, teasing. <laughs> Shall I read? Yes, please. So um, I'm determined not to do any spoilers. And um, with Damien's help, I've found four sections from four different chapters, um, which have sort of been stitched together into a little patchwork. And so I'm going to start with Julia. And it's August 1989. Lucifer flew well for her in the fading light, falling through the sky when she summoned him, and away again towards a great bruising sunset. She was alone on the ridge at first, just her, the bird, and the wide open view. It was one of those nervy summer days of sudden strong winds that fretted the hawk's feathers as he stared at her from his perch on her gauntlet. She was wearing a long red shirt over jeans and sandals. Her hair was breaking free of its band. A leather pouch hung from her belt and a whistle from a cord around her neck. The hawk braced his feet on her wrist making a leather tassel swing from the gauntlet. She felt the breath of his feathers on her face as he departed, and she watched him go with the wind right under his wings, scattering crows like drops shaken from an umbrella. 
Julia was trying her best to get it right for the bird. The morsels were small to keep him active, a shaming 26 ounces he'd weighed on the scales that morning. She called him to, with the whistle, two sharp bursts, and there he was, a dark Cupid's bow firing straight at her from the heavens. She continued along the ridge, Lucifer steady on her arm, his manic eyes never leaving her face until she gave the signal. She sent him reeling to and fro, and neither of them knew that this was to be their last dance. The evening started to chill. She'd almost forgotten that Julian was supposed to be meeting her there, or perhaps she'd just given up hope. He was panting when he arrived, still red in the face from the run up the hill, his bike and its useless tire abandoned. He had the air of a boy who'd crossed three continents to see her, his sweatshirt knotted round his waist, impossibly young, with hair falling over his eyes and an uncertain lope, one leg of his jeans still tucked into a sock. He didn't dare kiss her, he said, with the hawk glaring at him like that from the end of her wrist. The hawk shrugged his shoulders and she sent him flying. They kissed, and when Julian stopped to glance nervously at the sky, she took off her gauntlet and pushed his hand inside. She urged the hawk with her whistle, moving Julian's arm up and down, the gauntlet's tassel dancing. But Lucifer only soared higher, the wind whispering murder into his ear and deafening him to her call. Julia ran cursing, Julian lolloping beside her. She grabbed back the gauntlet as the hawk fell to his kill. Julian's hands were warm on her waist, and it seemed to them both that the scream of the rabbit went on forever. Um, and then the next bit I'm going to read is Julian, and it's, um, it's eight years later, um, and the kindness bomb, which is what we shall refer to it as in order not to do spoilers, <laughs> has recently gone off in his life. There are no photographs of Mira now. A drugged sleep, a ringing phone, a room full of daylight that has been cleansed of her existence. Julian surfaces, arms flailing, and wakes to a morning with no reason for waking. There is no sticky bottle of Calpol by Julia's side of the bed, no chewed copy of Goodnight Moon by his. The doll baby has disappeared along with her cardboard box cot from the corner where Mira played. Even the extra little pillow they had kept between their own in tacit approval of the nights she crawled in between them has been tactfully removed. Julian ignores the phone and buries himself deep beneath the sheets sinking back into a fug that smells only of himself so that he has to curl into a ball to bear it. Another August day dawns blasphemously close to midday with his arms and hands so groggy it is an effort to silence the phone when it starts up again. It's stuffy. He has to keep the windows shut against the creeping night-scented jasmine because it's been giving him a headache of late. Birds squabble among its vines. Something scritches at the glass. A distant cowbell bellows. A distant cow bellows, in fact. <laughs> a flare of light cuts through a gap in the curtains. Dust motes swirl. And though the picture is missing from his bedside table, Mira's face is the first thing that swims into focus. Mira, with a crown of daisies and sunshine in her hair. He's clumsy on the stairs, grabs the handrail to stop himself falling. He's an old man of 29 before the double hit of nicotine and coffee, crocked up and scratching beneath yesterday's T-shirt and boxers, automatically stooping his head beneath the beam at the turn and again at the door to the kitchen. 
The dog dance, dances around him, out of kilter with his mood, tail whacking the back of his legs, oblivious to anything but the emergency of its bladder, and runs and bursts like a cork through the door, runs sniffing among the fruit trees. Before setting the kettle to boil, Julian scrapes meat into the dog bowl and lands the fork with a clatter into the sink. Outside, there's a slam of a car door, the indignant cough of an ignition. He heaps coffee into a pot. The drawn curtains at the front, which of course Julia had wanted to change, are gauzy with sunlight. He keeps them closed so the people who come knocking might believe him not in. At last, the car drives away. And then the end of his day, um, to avoid spoilers, the day disappears much like the ones that went before it. Ferdors sinks into the dusk until eventually he switches on the lamps. He manages crisps, heats up some sort of stew, and finds the scent of the jasmine has grown stronger when he returns to his desk with a sturdy Duralex glass and the remains of a bottle of red wine. In their bedroom above, Julia would throw open the window to let in the scent. He imagines she's up there now, her lustrous hair kinking and pearling, mirror framed beside her in the golden square of light, holding out her arms, calling down to him, Dadu, to make sure he can see her there in her favourite pyjamas. He pours the wine. Soon he'll go out for some air, find the dog, and together they'll cross the garden by moonlight. He takes a gulp from his glass, the smell of the jasmine giving him a headache already. He can summon the taste of the sleeping pill he plans to take. Upstairs, the empty bed waits. He has nightmares about Mira falling. He'll wake in a sweat, his arms grabbing at the air like a newborn. Then emptiness, no Julia, no Mira. He rolls a last cigarette, calls to the dog. Mira skips back into his mind, avenues of trees unfurling leaves and promises, the afternoon sunny enough that he can't resist her pleas for the playground when he picks her up from nursery, pigeons hanging around like boys at the bus shelter hoping for a few extra crumbs from her lunchbox, and Mira hurtling down the bigger children's slide, her face screwed shut until he catches her, blinking with shock, her eyes meet his, and instantly she's confident as she gauges that he is smiling, all will be well, brave girl, he says as she slips from his grasp. Again, again, running back along the concrete to the steps, a loose strap of her dungarees flying, grabbing her to secure it, she watches his fingers, intently, always learning. Her funny skippity steps and his mix of pride and terror whenever she tried anything new, swinging her straight up to the top just so she doesn't have to work so hard climbing the metal steps, swooping her skywards and blowing a raspberry on her neck to make her laugh. All of this, over and over, until he glanced at his watch and realised that it was Friday and Julia would be back at Ferdor's already. Mira looking down at him from the brink to where he's ready to catch her. Okay, Dadu? That's what she called him, and neither he nor Julia could bear to correct her. Ready? Quite solemn. Seeing her from a new angle, from the crepe soles of her shoes up, no longer a baby. And then, down she comes, a starfish hurtling towards him, and he braces himself, ready to catch her. He set Mira on the foot of the slide to help her get a stone from her shoe, her sock a little sweaty as he straightened it. He slipped the shoe back onto her foot, bowing nobly. Is your name Cinderella? And she giggled, told him, don't be a silly. He showed her again how to thread the strap through the buckle. Her breathing grew heavy as she concentrated on the task, and he held her foot steady. He reaches to the drawer, opens it a touch just to be sure it's still there. It's impossible to resist. He takes it out and holds it as he does every day. The creases across the toes have shaped it, 
The soft leather sole has yielded. The heel bulges, so it's almost as though he has her little foot in his hand and not just her shoe. And now I'm going to skip, if, if you want me to, mm. yeah, um, to um, a part when... This is from Julian's university days. Um, it's late, it's after a party. Um, he's with his best friend Carl, a medical student, and a sexy girl called Cara, and another less sexy girl, another medical student called Verity. They'd finished the bottle of brandy one of Carl's housemates had swiped from a party. Cara prowled the borders of Carl's room, pulled books from some shelves, studied the random objects ranged around, picked up some old vertebrae and put them down fast, blew dust from flowers desiccated in wine bottles, her hat fixed at a jaunty angle. She came to a standstill at Carl's microscope. That's what started it. Tracing her finger along a box of slides and looking back at them over her shoulder, but addressing only Carl. Someone I know had a boyfriend who liked to study his own sperm under the microscope. Outrageously flirtatious. Do you ever do that, Carl? I do it every day, he replied, suppressing a smile. <laughs> oh, if you could see this typescript. <laughs> pictures. He'd unhooked his glasses and was polishing them on the hem of his shirt. He looked up, stopping to meet her gaze, blinking in that way he did without his specs. Mine and other people's. His face was almost bare without them, vulnerable like a boy that has lost his mother. Verity stopped leafing through piles of CDs and rocked back on her heels, alert as a terrier at the rattle of a biscuit tin. Really? Yeah, that's what I'm researching. We're testing sperm and its reaction to various chemicals and drugs. He grinned at Cara again. His chevroning eyebrows were the most attractive thing about him. You've kept that very quiet, Verity said. Is it a contraception project? Yeah, that's why I'm still here. Carl gestured at the room and shrugged. It's got a small grant, so I get paid. And you collect your own samples? Cara looked sideways at him from beneath the brim of the bowler. We work from Frozen, mainly. Carl shot a quick glance at Julian and grinned. Though we're always looking for donors... Julian snorted, felt himself grow hot. Verity plonked herself close beside him among the cushions, rubbing her hand back and forth along the inside seam of his jeans. Another bottle of brandy was discovered, followed by chasers of Uzo from Carl's housemate's holiday. On repeat was that tape of Carl's favourite soundtrack, The Mission. Julian could hear it through the wall as he sat on the edge of the lavatory, his jeans round his ankles, Verity on her knees, keen to assist, tugging at him with all the delicacy of a milkmaid. <laughs> he looked at the glass jar in his left hand and thought of Cara in the other room with Carl. Somehow that helped. Cara with a gap between her front teeth and swingy hair that smelled of apricots and that shirt on the verge of unbuttoning all evening. Carl had been leaning over her, finally removing the hat as Verity led him from the room with the jar. He had one last look as Cara edged herself up Carl's desk, her skirt sliding to the top of her thighs, Carl's hands already in her hair, and Cara leaning back so Carl had to stoop over her to kiss her, and at last her shirt fell open, and yes, no bra! And with that, Verity got her sample. <laughs> the extractor fan whirred and clanked as Verity inspected his cloudy offering, holding the jar to the light, tipping it this way and that until he begged her to stop, felt by pudeur and suddenly sober. Carl prepared the slide and set up the microscope. 
He slushed the sample with saline, Cara beside him like a dental nurse in disarray, her shirt buttoned up all wrong. Verity hovered, refusing eye contact with Julian, while Carl continued making tiny adjustments to the microscope, peering through the eyepiece, raising and lowering the platform. Julian was almost tapping his foot with impatience when Carl started jigging, doing a pee-pee dance. Sorry, I'll be quick, he said, dashing from the room. Don't touch anything. Cara and Verity kept spluttering with laughter. Cara put her hand hat onto Carl's skeleton. The joint was finally passed back to him and tasted hot. They heard the chugging of the flush, and Carl sidled back, looking flustered. Why don't the three of you finish smoking that thing while I sort this out? Julian really was very stoned by the time Carl called him over. Carl gripped him by the shoulder. Take a look, he said, all swimming around with no particular place to go. And he shushed Verity, telling her to wait her turn. Julian bent to the eyepiece. He was oddly moved by what he saw. This constellation? No, more than that, so many of them, each with its own halo as though lit from within, sparkling, darting, flickering, his very own universe composed entirely of comets. They seemed so purposeful, so bright and full of promise, that for a moment he felt sad for each and every one of them, for their urgency, for the messages they would never get to deliver. Julia arrived in his life the very next day. It was as if she had sprung, fully formed from his forehead. Julia, like a prize for the climb he'd taken to get there, standing on the crest of the downs with three counties falling away behind her and her long hair flying. Just moments before, he'd been dreaming her up, this very woman, as he clambered up the chalk path, his shame receding as he climbed higher. He'd summoned her from the depths of his hangover, wished her into being. Ta-da! She was everything he desired, right down to the muscular brown calves that emerged from her cut-off blue jeans. I was just, as you were reading, I was just thinking, yes, yes, this definitely is the first time we've had a sperm extraction sample described <laughs> at a salon. It's, a, it's definitely a first. Um, lovely Verity. Um, which, uh, that particular bit, I remember we were talking about the research, this sounds really wrong, the research <laughs> that you did for it. Um, and, 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 but in actual fact, there is a whole world of oh. sperm on YouTube. Yes, it was, I mean, YouTube is your friend for these things because... I mean, I kind of know what sperm must look like. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, tadpoles, you know, is how I imagined it. But I really wanted to be able to describe it as Julian. And suddenly I thought, oh, God, YouTube, there's bound to be a scientist or something on there. Blimey. <laughs> 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 there seems to be a thing among young men, particularly American young men, where they film their sperm under the microscope and then they put them on YouTube and they play guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a thing. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what are, they like? are they quite moving? Is it like emotional? Well, or it depends is it like on really how fast paced. Depends how motile their sperm are. <laughs> <laughs> that that really um, that really was something else uh, <laughs> when you told me about that. 
uh, let's go back to the beginning, uh, to Lucifer, the hawk, and the downs, and that whole scene. Yes. Now, I first read that as a short story in, in The Guardian. Yes. It was published as a, as a discreet short story, um, <laughs> and, and, and it crops up, um, obviously, in the book. It's a key scene. Did the book start from that short story, or did it have another genesis? No, it... it, it, it um well, I, I always had this idea, because I was feeling quite militant about short stories at the time, that although I knew it was going to be a, mo a, a novel, I sort of, in my way of thinking, God, the world is so horrible to short stories, you know, I'm going to prove them all wrong. I was going to write a short novel that was going to end with Julian, who's in this terrible state throughout mm. the book, and it was going to end with this burst of him being able to write, and he was going to write these five short stories. And so the, the one that was in The Guardian was the first of those five short stories, oh. which actually I did write three of them um, and then realised that that wasn't the structure I was going eventually going to use. And so I chopped them and changed them and put them, mixed them in. Mm. Um, but it was quite a nice way for me to do it because I'd been writing so many stories. So it was a, it was, it was a good way to do it. Um, as, with, um, as with Patrick and uh, uh, to a lesser extent Amanata, there was a, a real-life inspiration for, for part of the story. We're not going to give away no. um, the, the kind of two key sort of spoilers, but um, tell us about the real-life inspiration for oh, part of the it's story. It's hard to do that without, a, without doing a spoiler. It was an uncle who I was very, very fond of who lived in Paris and would he was a photographer and he would come and visit us and... When I was 11, he died, and I was told he died of a heart attack, and something just didn't ring true. And so being a sort of inquisitive spy child, I started going through things and discovered that he'd committed suicide. And the kindness that is the kindness in the book is the kindness that was the cause of his suicide. And it's been with you for a long time, that story, because you told me yeah. that you found some diaries from your, your early 20s. I was so surprised. I, I, I thought I hadn't been thinking about this for longer than 10 years. But it turns out that in a, in a notebook from when I was 20 that I'd sketched out this story um, and then forgotten about it for all these years. And then the thing that, that made me start writing it again was um, my brother went to visit his father in, not his father, his father was dead, his, his father's widow in East Berlin. And for reasons of, of politics more than bigamy, <laughs> my mother had moved between two men, one in the West and one in the East, when I was conceived and born. And the man I called Daddy wasn't actually m my biological father, who mm. I did grow up with eventually. And I hadn't seen this ex-husband of hers for, I don't know, since I was eight, I think. And what was so painful <laughs> was my brother visited the widow and brought back for me my baby shoe. And he'd kept it for all those years. I mean, I wasn't his child. Mm. And it, was, it really gave me a, a sort of pain. And so I think that was the moment that I started to sort of put this together. And that's the shoe that and he touches, and it's the shoe that you it's the shoe that's, that's found in, in, the, in his hammock. Yeah. At a certain point, um, the, there's Lucifer the hawk. Um, that, that research was more fun than the sperm. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm quite cross about H's for hawk. Yes. <laughs> because well, I, you know, I feel I own falconry. I went and did a whole day. She did get in there first, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but the the the. the 
there's there's Lucifer, the the hawk, and there are various other references that start to add up yeah. to something in in the book. Um, and you know, you never you never explicitly state it, and it's not an allegory or you know. But Paradise Lost is a shade in the book, isn't it? There is oh, there is a there are more lots of it. Actually, it's there's it's for the sort of one person in ten million who can remember Paradise Lost, they will get a sort of, I hope, an extra pleasure. I mean, most people, you don't need to have read Paradise Lost. Because I'm a, a method writer, I did spend a year reading Paradise Lost and pretending I was Julian at university studying Paradise Lost. And so re reading all those kind of heavy tomes <laughs> and obsessing about Paradise Lost. And I once did a, you know, I wanted desperately to talk to someone who recently studied it. And I tweeted, anyone here study Paradise Lost? And about, you know, 20 people tweeted back, yes, me. And I then tweeted them all saying, could I talk to you about it? And all of them said, can't remember a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but luckily, someone who'd been at university with my son, who was sort of as obsessed with it as I was, became a correspondent for a while. And so that was lovely. That really helped me to shape it. Mm. And he sort of pointed me in the direction of all those great and actually rather boring books about Paradise. I mean, Paradise Lost is wonderful. People writing about Paradise Lost is not wonderful. <laughs> um, but most of the characters are in some way related to Paradise Lost. Well, m there, there's definitely... They're all named. Yeah, they're <laughs> named. And there's the experience of a fall, yes. you know, um, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a critical part yes. of it. Now, there are parallels, and Julian himself is a, is, is a, is a, um, a scholar of Milton. Um, you said about being a message writer there. Um, and actually, you know, you, and you've done this in your short stories as well, you really invest in your research to the point of where you're clearly just avoiding doing writing by spending too much time <laughs> doing research, which is fair enough because lots of people do that. But, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this recently and thinking, actually, I think that's because you didn't go to university. I think it's the autodidact in you that's, that's I want to know everything about this so nobody can say that I'm wrong. I suppose that get, there's a bit of insecurity, but it is also that, I, I mean, I genuinely, I mean, I walk my miles and miles and miles. That's my main sort of... And I walk... sounds so mad. I walk as the person. And so I kind of walk along as Julian, along the seafront, eyeing up women. <laughs> That's <laughs> our excuse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I just have to be those, those people. And, and it's a great way, if you're stuck, mm. just go for a walk as that character, and it just unsticks you. And it's... You know, you come back, and it's like typing. Um, there's... A lot in the book about grief and loss. Um, when we yeah. meet Julian, he's grieving. He's grieving for Mira. Um, he's also grieving for for, for Julia. Um, and there's th th there's a, a lot of that kind of um, sadness in th in the book. And I know that at the time you were writing it, you know, your son had gone to prison and your dad died. Yeah. Um, and happy um, days. Happy times. <laughs> so you know, and then you're writing this incredibly sad book. And yeah. you know, w w was the book. Was that, that a way for you to process it, to channel it? Was it a refuge, or was it just what was going on in your life? Oh, and that was, you know. Just lovely to have imaginary friends and make horrible things happen to them if you're having horrible things happening to yourself. It's a, you know, it is, it's a rest from your own problems. Where it wasn't so. Actually, my father was um, killed um, by a malprescription. He was a perfectly healthy man of an antibiotic. Um, for he had a he had macular degeneration. He was apart from that, he was a very very fit and healthy man. And actually, the man who normally does my punctuation. So this is the first book I've had to write without my dad doing the punctuation. Um, but I mean, I miss him for all sorts of reasons. But what was particularly horrible, and it's something that's worth looking out for, is that he was being treated at Moorfields for an for an macular degeneration, and they injected his eye 
and they got a superbug into his eye and the antibiotic they prescribed killed his liver and he died a horrible death from his liver and it was a totally preventable death and horrific. Um, and at the time, I was researching at Great Ormond Street, because I mean, the researching at, the great, at great Ormond Street in, you know, involved... You were researching mirrors mi condition. Mirrors, because, yes, the child in the book <coughs> is, is treated at Great Ormond Street. And so I was spending a lot of time in my over-researching way, sort of just sitting around at Great Ormond Street and going into the chapel at Great Ormond Street, because, I mean, you can't really wander around the wards staring at children, you know, but it, just to get the <laughs> atmosphere. And then I'd go from there to my poor dad, who was in, you know, the Royal Free you know, having been told there was nothing they could do for him, sort of dying. And it, you know, it, that was, I think that was the low point of writing the book, actually, because mm. they just felt then that there was no rest. Um, but but it's just worth mentioning, because when people are over 80, you've just got to be really careful about antibiotics, because it's, he wasn't alone. That ward was full of people who'd been mal-prescribed antibiotics. Mm. Um, but you, you, you know, you kept that contact through your dad. Through, I mean, he was well up until a certain, yeah. up until a certain point, and he knew what you were writing. And what I think is interesting is, is that you continued to have that 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 conversation, and he continued yes. to, to have input into. Well, while you he know, could still speak. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, Ruan Pelling uh, described this book, I think, as a thriller of the emotions, and I thought that was a really brilliant way um, of describing it. Um, because it really is incredibly tense, and there are a few pivots on which the book the book turns, where yeah. the landscape just changes entirely, yeah. changes tectonically. So much fun to write. Um, <laughs> did you know that you were writing a, 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 a thriller of any kind when you set out to do it? I, I didn't. I, uh, some of the time I didn't, and other times I thought, am I just being a horrible withholding bitch here? <laughs> you know, just sort of, you know, I know this, you know, I'm leading everyone up the wrong path. You know, is this actually okay? But I think it is. I think it, it does in the end, it works. Damien, can I just say that the yeah. first time you um, helped me with this book. Yeah. Was, um, so I never take my phone into the room where I work um, because, you know, no more somber enemy of writing than the than iPhone, Twitter. than the iPhone in the room with yeah. you. I mean, just, you know. It's God. not the pram in the hallway it anymore. It's not, no, and I feel furious that it was ever the pram in of the hallway because I know that baby. But um, I had, I think one of my children was unwell at school or something, so I had to take the phone in with me. And Damien, who'd finished his book, <laughs> 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 texted me, so what are you doing? You know, fancy going for a walk or, you know, what are you doing? And so I, I'd been putting off writing a scene because it was very difficult. Um, and so I just sort of thought, right, I'm going to show you. So I, I just typed back. I am trying to write a scene where Julian is wanking into Julia's <laughs> jumper. Help me. <laughs> and the reply came back, make it cashmere. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd found the person who could help me after that. <laughs> Always best to do it into cashmere. Sylvia. <laughs> Oh, God, it's a very big philosophical question. Is like kindness it. being lost as a verb in our society, as an well, action? Are we losing kindness? Are we? I'm not sure that we are. Uh, well I think we're more aware of cruelty than we were, um, thanks to things like Twitter, but we're also more aware of kindness. You didn't ask me. I think, answering. yeah, no, no, that's a perfect... Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think that both kindness and unkindness are things that we now have to take responsi more responsibility for since things like 
Twitter. Yeah. So that, you know, you, you, you do get kind of called out if you behave badly. So actually, I think people probably are as unkind as they've ever been, but they just have this horrible sort of veneer of kindness that sometimes yeah. isn't real. I mean, I'd love to think that people were kinder than... I don't were. think they're any more. I think I think they're just you know everybody in this room. I think is kind. Oh no, it's everyone been a ben here. Benediction Wonderful. of kindness <laughs> on this room. Tiffany Murray, are you saying yes to kindness or are you asking a question? <laughs> yeah, yes, she's kindness. yes, yes, kindness. Kindness, I think, is the most important quality. That was like a country auction there, yeah. Tiffany. Can I just say you, you just you just you almost bet <laughs> yourself a question. <laughs> Questions over here. Sorry, I'm aware that I can't see be I can't see behind me. Yes, Kirsty. Yes, where oh. did the hawk come from? Do you know, I think it was from Twitter. <laughs> I think someone, this is years ago, tweeted, and it's not the sort of tweet anyone does anymore, but they just tweeted, wouldn't it be amazing to walk along with a hawk on your arm? And I thought, yeah, it really would. <laughs> and um, I, th I genuinely think that's, that's what it was from. That's where that image came yeah. from. Yeah, and I think it was, it just happened to sort of fall out of Twitter yeah. um, at the point that I was sort of thinking about how to do the opening. Um, I have to say that um, it, is, it is genuinely a, a thriller of the emotions. And um, it's not all about wanking. It's not all. Well, for those of you who want it to be, sadly, <laughs> it's, it's not all about wanking. There is some cashmere. Um, but it, but it, is, it, is, it is an incredible book. Um, I can't wait for it to come out. I know that it's going to do incredibly well. It deserves to. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Paul Johnson. Thank you, Patrick.